What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Michael Phillips. Who are we if we can't protect them? Emily Blunt in last weekend's box office champ, A Quiet Place, about a family living in silence surrounded by nasty beasts who hunt by sound. Not a whole lot of chit-chat in that movie, Michael, but we'll make up for that this week on the show with our review. Or (laughs) will we? Plus, our top five this week, Quiet Scenes. Please, quietly. And your film spotting madness, best of the 90s champion, that's all ahead on Film Spotting. (laughs) Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh is still on the road selling copies of Movies Are Prayers out of the back of his car. I'm pretty sure. Michael, have you seen the Maisel's Brothers doc, Salesman? That's that's Josh. He's basically <laughs> Josh. the badger. Instead of Bibles, it's Movies Are Prayers. Well, and I wrote I wrote a promotional blurb for that book because it's a very good book, Josh yes, wrote. Yes, did. And, and so maybe I get a little piece of whatever he sells? Mm, I don't think so. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune is here. Thank you for once again filling in one of our returning champions here on oh, the show. Oh, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. We had a great time. Last week, I had a great time with our mutual friend, Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and The Next Picture Show podcast. She was here last week. We talked about Spielberg's Ready Player One and shared our top five movie homages, so movie references in other movies. What did you think of the new Spielberg, Michael? I, you know, I liked it, and I think it feels 10 years out of date, and I wish that Spielberg had dealt with the whole world of virtual reality mm. and just some of the things that he's clearly conflicted by in terms of the, where the technology might lead us. I wish he found a different way to do it besides kind of adapting another tired YA dystopian novel, which I just frankly had it with. Nonetheless, I thought the best stuff visually kind of carried me. All right. What about you? What about you? Yeah, I I think I'm with you. I was pretty mixed on the film. Tasha, a little more favorable, definitely more favorable. And we had a good discussion about that movie. I encourage anyone to seek it out if you are curious and if you haven't heard it already. We also had a chance to talk film spotting madness. Michael's 
favorite topic every year when he is on. It seems you come on once in April and you have to do some of the cleaning up at the end of Film Spotting Madness. And I just know you're super invested in finding out who's going to win our best of the 90s tourney. I am. I am. You've yeah. been filling out your bracket? Yeah. Is it going to be the English patient or? <laughs> the, 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 no, that Good wasn't movie. in. I don't think that was. It, it, it did not make it. Did it. not make it. Even huh. though I'm a fan of the English patient. This week we will crown our Film Spotting Madness champion vying for that crown. Pulp Fiction, and fresh from its upset victory over Goodfellas, Fargo. Beat Goodfellas? It did. It took down Goodfellas in the semifinal. Marge. We will have that result along with some feedback from a Chicago-area particle physicist who employed an artificial intelligence-powered algorithm to determine the winner. Because science, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) But first, movie theaters were eerily quiet this weekend, punctuated with the occasional scream. Let's break the silence on A Quiet Place. Okay, Adam, quiet on the set. Here is the setup of writer-director John Krasinski's new film, A Quiet Place, where a few years into the future, somehow America and maybe beyond has been overrun by monstrous, very fast, blind creatures with unusually acute senses of hearing. So, for the family the movie's about, living in upstate New York in a farmhouse retrofitted for maximum hush, life is an exercise in perpetual suspense and stressful silence. Krasinski plays the father, Lee, married to Evelyn, played by Krasinski's real-life spouse, Emily Blunt. In the prologue, they have three children, and they're making a little foray into this deserted town just Mm -hmm. to see if they can scavenge any groceries out of the looted and kind of basically desolate store. And three children quickly become two. I don't want to give everything away, but surviving son, played by Noah Jupe, and his older sibling, a deaf girl, played by the actress Millicent Simmons of Wonderstruck, are haunted by the memory of what we see in that prologue. A Quiet Place is a battle of wits, both small in scale, but big in jump scares. And I have seven or maybe eight questions, Adam, regarding this (laughs) film. Okay, number one, can this family figure out a way to vanquish these creatures who hear virtually every little creak of the floor from hundreds of yards away in the woods? Number two, can Evelyn give birth silently somehow with a creature actually in the house? Number three, now that Krasinski is an A-list director suddenly, will he follow up A Quiet Place, which made 50 million bucks? in its opening weekend with a sequel, and the door is certainly open for a sequel at the end of this picture. Or four, should the one-time co-star of NBC's The Office use his newfound political capital another way? Number five, is Krasinski truly a gifted director? Or six, have we already forgotten how ordinary his earlier work, brief interviews with Hideous Men, which he directed, and The Hollers, which he also directed, really were? Most importantly, Adam Seven, will we ever eat popcorn full volume in a movie theater again with confidence? As someone said on Twitter the other day, if you get a popcorn piece stuck in your throat midway through a quiet place, you just have to die. (laughs) That's what they said. All right, so finally, one more. Eight, why do I keep thinking about Shane and High Noon when I think about this rugged frontier clan? fending off the hostels in A Quiet Place. Is this some sort of bizarre hybrid of a Western and a monster movie and kind of a survivalist anthem? Okay, these are the eight questions I have for you. Okay, yes, yes, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe, okay. yeah, All right. never saw them, don't care, don't, ooh. no, <laughs> and oh. the last one, 
I'm not equipped to talk about right now. I didn't really think about the Western, the Western like Shane and High Noon, though, of course, you do get this idea that maybe like even Rio Bravo, where they're sort of trapped in a certain spot. And yes, you do have the the villains on the outside and you're trying to to survive. And I, I think you could look to the father son relationship here in particular. It's one that is rooted in the father trying to teach him the ways of being a man. How and, to survive. Yeah, how, to, how survive. to survive and potentially take his place one day if something were to happen to him. So certainly they are dealing with some of the same questions and concerns. I did like this movie, Michael, and I think that you do have to acknowledge that in a way it's a bit of a trick. Krasinski, though, I think is a capable and sensitive enough magician here. We will get into this a little bit with our top five. I think anytime we're forced as viewers to focus on every single noise emanating from the screen. Every noise a character makes, every noise a character around them makes, Mm -hmm. we're obviously more alert. We are more focused. We are watching people not do the thing we do every day for the most part, which is take our movement. Most of our movements, our actions, our every choice for granted. And these characters obviously don't have that luxury. So naturally, we're going to be more invested, I think, as viewers in what we're watching than we would be with most movies. And I'll confess here, I did not eat popcorn. I think I probably would have naturally tried to eat it more quietly because that is the type of effect this movie has on you. I watched a lot of it through my eyes. I really did. Just wanting to avoid what I was sure was coming next. And Mm. most of the time I was right, and I don't think that predictability is a problem with this movie. I think there's a lot of Krasinski letting the audience do the math here. Two plus two equals four. We're dreading the inevitable moment when the characters figure out the answer, but we've already solved the equation. I think there's, there's a satisfaction in that, though satisfying is maybe the wrong word because I think mostly watching this film is a dreadful experience. It is full of dread. Yeah. And that is the the pleasure of the film and it is the pain of the film. It's a it's a hard sit. I'm not eager to revisit it. At the same time, it was an experience. I'm glad I saw it and ultimately I do I do recommend people deal with the dread. It's already kind of creeping up a little bit in my estimation. I was a little, I was a little cool on it, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm not. I'm still trying to st- sort out why exactly I didn't r- really love it because it's got a lot of things I I, I like in in offbeat, somewhat unconventional uh, twists on familiar genres, right? I mean, this is a small-scale, relatively cheap. It's about $17 bucks, though. You can get a lot of good small-scale indies, uh, especially in the horror genre or the horror-action hybrid genre, uh, for that amount of money. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not squandered money. It's it's an interesting scale, and I, I think you're absolutely right. The real selling point and the novelty, and I think the reason people are going in the first place are... A, it's a monster movie, so they're on familiar ground there. But B, you get this big focus and a really intent, patient, and very detailed component of of dread that's completely ginned up by the sound and by, mm-hmm. by every little melding of the sound and Marco Beltrami's music, which I don't think is a great successful component of the film. I think Beltram, I think there are times where it works very well, yeah, sometimes where it's maybe over. And there's a lot of it. There's, if, if he had only cut down on some of those mm-hmm. you know, jump scare mm-hmm. sco- uh, cues, which are just, you know, six or eight of those, 
and suddenly you're not really watching a quiet movie of any kind because it's actually kind of a noisy movie in some ways uh, when the music gets going. But I think I I do love the way Krasinski's approach kind of forces the audience to kind of lean into this thing a little bit. And, you know, is Krasinski a great actor? I think he's, I always loved him on The Office. I I think he's medium effective in this, but Emily Blunt is 100% terrific. Yes. And, and the kids, and so are the kids, and Kiss Simmons especially. especially Simmons. Oh, she's great, and and my favorite. Well, we'll talk about my favorite one in a minute. But you know, I I liked it. It basically works, and I'm not yet sure why I didn't love it. Love it, but you know, it basically works. Yeah, no, I I think it definitely basically works, and I know very little about these performers and the director here in real life. But I know that Krasinski and Blunt, as you mentioned, are married. I know that they have two young kids, I believe two young daughters in real life. I have no idea what he has said about this movie. haven't really read any interviews or seen any quotes, but it seems to be the type of movie, this is pretty obvious to say, that a new-ish father might be compelled to make. Mm. It is all based on this fundamental fear that we have as parents. We heard it in the clip at the very beginning of the show when Blunt Evelyn is her name, I believe. We don't really hear their names. They don't speak their names to each other, but I think her name's Evelyn. His name is yeah, Lee. Yeah, Lee, Lee and Evelyn. And she says, who are we if we can't protect them? We have to protect them. Strip us away as parents, as people. That's that's really it. That's at the core of all this. And so I think as viewers, especially if you are a parent, you are going to be immediately drawn to that. On the other side, Michael, I almost wonder if Krasinski was playing a little bit off a joke, which is, as parents, what's the one thing we are constantly doing with young kids? Asking them to be quiet. <laughs> Always, <laughs> yeah, if, you just, if you just could have a little bit more silence in the house, a little more peace and quiet, which parent doesn't want that? And so this is kind of riffing on that idea. What if that was everyday life? What if you never got to actually really experience sound with them, whether it's it's just letting go of your voice. And there's a key moment in this movie where two characters, the son and the father, get to let go finally. And you feel that just the, the relief of that when they, they actually get to just express themselves in that way. So I thought that was kind of funny anyway. We always wish for that kind of silence and be careful what you wish for. But I think that that, that same fear, that fundamental fear that this whole movie is predicated on is, of course, the aspect of it that is arguably pretty manipulative, too, because there is no more easy way to prey on an audience's emotions than to hold the fear of something happening to a child over them. Right. And that is this movie for 95 minutes. Well, and then and then uh, the most kind of insidiously effective scene, in my view, in the picture is sort of takes that and doubles it in that you have Millicent Simmons playing the, the deaf daughter who's got mm-hmm. a cochlear implant in one ear, and so she can't hear what is immediately behind her at night in a cornfield, which is one of the creatures in one of the first full full body shots that Krasinski gives it. So it's dead quiet. And the audience on cue freaks out just like uh, Audrey Hepburn, the blind character in Wait Until Dark, uh, you know, uh, being preyed upon and and terrorized by those who can exploit who she is for their own gain, right? And that, that 10, 20 seconds in A Quiet Place is actually the best filmmaking in the picture, I think. Mm. It's also the most alarming use of sudden silence yes. because we see what's about to happen. She does not yet. And that that's a wonderful way of keeping the audience slightly ahead of the action. But yeah. I wish more of the film had that going for it. I think some of it 
it almost kind of like provokes the logic cop in you where you and I don't usually get hung up on this stuff, but the film rides on this one concept is like they have to stay almost completely silent and or within their very mm-hmm. heavily soundproofed house. So Emily Blunt's character has to give birth quietly while this thing is in the right. house. I go with that scene, but then the infant, the newborn, mm-hmm. is very quiet, is, is, is basically a mute <laughs> and a mime, let's say. Yeah. You know, more of a Marcel Marceau. And so uh, conveniently very quiet when really everything in your head is telling, is telling you that baby would not, it wouldn't work out that way. Am I, what, did I, am I being kind of an old fud? No, no, because fuddy duddy. I've seen a few of these. <laughs> I've seen a few of these types of comments floating around on Twitter and Letterboxd, so you're certainly not alone. I have to say, and look, I'm I'm always the one who is easily distracted by a narrative where things don't add up. And no. I'm not even thinking this example when I say that, but going back to another recent horror movie, It Follows was a film I know so many people loved, and I did not, partly because I couldn't go with the logic of that film. I felt like it was all predicated on this idea of understanding the basic idea at the core, what happens when A occurs and then B. Right. It didn't really work for me. And here's one where I honestly never felt truly taken out of the picture ever by some of those little some of those logic, logic issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt like for the most part, Krasinski found ways to set us up for certain questions yep. and, and they were answered by the movie before we could say, but wait a second. And I had a few of those. There was the one about the baby. Immediately, you're like, okay, how is this going to happen? <laughs> and and they did have a plan and, and the movie shows us. Well, they, they ferberized the kid. <laughs> Basically. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> the, the movie does think about most of these things and I felt like most of the answers were pretty satisfactory. I'll give you one too that, that I think speaks to this where she... Without giving too much away here, I hope we're dancing around it enough. But she does go into labor at one point, as yeah, you I've touched on. I've already blown that one. You've blown so, that yeah. one. She goes into labor, and she goes into labor at a point where he's not around. Right. And as a viewer, it's easy to immediately go, you're telling me that you would go off at exactly the worst time possible and be away when she might be going into the labor. But Krasinski does answer that for us. A couple shots earlier in the movie where we see her writing on a calendar. We see her taking note of her blood pressure. Yeah, they set and, that one up and fine, And it, it shows us that she's going into labor early. Yeah. We also understand kind of what prompts her to go into labor early. Right. But we know that she's not meant to deliver then. He feels like there's still a few weeks away. I'm safe to go do this. So for the most part, I felt like the movie danced around those things well enough. But, yeah, you can't help but watch some of those moments where they're they're rustling the corn or, yeah, yeah, or they're yeah, doing yeah. something. Yeah. You're going, well, that seems kind of loud to me. Right. <laughs> Why right. isn't a monster appearing? Right, right. No, it is. I mean, they have lives, too. They're probably just a little further a little in the busy. woods. But, you know. you know, let me give you one example, actually, at the very beginning of the film. That is apparent, and maybe it just speaks to my paranoia. And I am, I am one of those parents who can't believe how much – freedom my parents gave me as a kid, how much right. just running around randomly I did, and they had no idea where I was and what kind of trouble I was getting into. The very beginning of this film, I know we're 89 days into this whole Yeah, so that's how it's I think scenario. day 87, yeah. <laughs> but that seems enough that they understand the basic rules of how to try to survive in this situation. And yet, just in that opening scene, the way the kid's running around, the the act that ultimately leads to the tragedy at the beginning. Right. As a parent, I'm going, 
you're, what you're you're telling me that you really let that right, happen? Right, right, I yeah, mean, yeah. It, that was one. Where I was it with it because I, I, yeah, I was. With, it's funny, but some some things throw you in, some right. things some things throw you out, you know, and you just don't you just don't know. I one of the things I really did like about Krasinski's approach as the writer is this film is a quiet place reminds us how little exposition a movie needs. Totally. There's no, you don't nope. stop dead for one scientific explanation, for one reminder of how this how this bizarre plague came about. Is it extraterrestrials? Are mm-hmm. they from another planet? Is this some sort of biochemical freak out, you know, like George Romero back in the 70s? You know, they, it, you don't know. You don't care. No. And I think most people don't yearn for an explanation. We don't need it. Having just seen Rampage, uh-huh. for God's sake, <laughs> an unrelated monster movie, but that film periodically just dies on its feet while characters spout the most uninteresting scientific update about what might be happening with this crisis, you know? And, yeah. And, you know, nobody needs that in their life. No, no. I, I feel like that really is a strength of this movie. Now, we talk about that decision to have a baby, and I think that's the one. And I'm not sure that I'm saying here I really wanted it. I don't need more discussion in this movie, not that the movie and its premise would allow for a whole lot of conversation. <laughs> but clearly at some point, these two people, after going through what we see them go through at the beginning, make a pretty radical, bold decision to bring a new baby into this world. It's very pro-life, this movie. <laughs> it is. And... There is a case, Michael, where you could have made an entirely separate movie just out of the decision to have that baby. And so I respect the willingness of the filmmakers here to not go down that path. I think I felt like I knew what they were going to do before the movie even revealed that they did it. It's not really a surprise. And I think we can we can understand the pain at the core of that decision. But that was a case where there's a part of me that really, really wishes I could have heard that back and forth. <laughs> it wouldn't have, it right? would have been better. Just because, it would have been better for it. That's a good point. <laughs> Just because that that's such a, a crazy notion. It really right. is. And even though, like I said, I, I understand kind of what's driving it, it still felt like there's some questions that could have been answered I, this is there. This is one of the things that I think prevents me from really loving this film mm. is, is that – there's just a matter of fact, acceptance of that decision, fine, it's good. You know, it's sort of in in, in keeping with the, we're not going to talk about it. it. Is. We're just going to, here's, here's mm-hmm. the situation. But there is a certain edge of piety in some of the behavior and the way the characters are set up and the way we're just sort of, you know, the, the kind of the Western ethos and, you know, here's how we're going to survive, mm-hmm. son, and, you know, it's all that. I don't know. Well, what is it about that that I resist, Adam? I don't a, know. A little bit. There's something in that kind of, the more serious and more solemn westerns that I've never really, really taken to personally, even though I love yeah. a lot of westerns and I like a lot of this film, which I, in a in a peculiar way is kind of a western, I think, yeah. with critters in it, you know, and that it's a it's a bizarre hybrid of of genres, but it seems to be really hitting people's appetite very well, and I can see why. I can see why it's a very very different film. Then something that did come to mind also while I was watching it, Trey Edward Schultz's It Comes yeah, at Night. Now, that's another film. we got a film that's based in a kind of an undetermined, unspecified plague in the near future, a family living in the woods, unable to trust anybody. Uh, that's a fairly quiet picture, too. It's also a really despairing and nihilistic 
storyline. Yes. And you knew watching it whether you liked it or bought it personally or not that it would make a buck three eighty at the box office. Yes. This film you can tell right away that it's got Hollywood in its bones. Yeah. It's small. It's it feels like an India though. It's a big studio picture just made on a medium small budget. But it's got you know, it, 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 the way the story works, without giving too much away, it, 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 it goes in a direction of triumphalist action picture. Let's rouse the audience. Mm-hmm. Into a, you know, that's, that's the operative structure of the thing. And, you know, maybe I went in kind of expecting one sort of film or a little less of that and a little more something else. I don't know. I, I, I think I have to give this one another shot because I, I love the basic idea of, yeah. like, making the audience pay attention to what they're hearing more than they have in a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in some interviews, Krasinski's talked about just coming out of a typical Marvel superhero movie. You know, those are deafening experiences. Are. And this is not a quiet experience because, as I say, the sound design mixed in with the music elements is, you know, it's it's really dominant and present in almost every scene. But But it does, it's very canny about the way it sort of catches your eye and your ear in the same shot where you have like the, the family mm-hmm. playing Monopoly. Now, yes. how are they playing Monopoly? They have felt, you know, they basically, it's, it's, they have cloth on yes. all the pieces. So nothing, I love that detail. They yeah, make shit good pieces and, and the fact that yep. you're right, they, they are meant to be muffled. Yeah, so no, that detail can, I kind of love because yeah. it's like life goes on, um, but we have, a, we have a peculiar situation here. Well, that idea is the other thing that really, in a way, touched me about the movie, I think, Michael, and seemed very smart in that it is about this idea of life going on. The fact that you've got these people and and this family who are trying to live as relative a normal life as they can, and they are living in the moment. You have to live in the moment. But at the same time, there is still this sense of purpose. They're still having school. She's still teaching her son about how to divide properly because there's this hope. There's this thought that, well, maybe math someday will matter again. And and maybe it won't even be in a larger societal context. Maybe it will just be within the context of you trying to stay alive. The fact that they're they're teaching them, as we touched on, to fish and, and be able to provide for yourself, just this idea that I think is accurate, mm. that despite the hopelessness and the despair, it would also be our instinct as human beings to do what we would normally do or to try to make it as normal and to try to survive and have that sense of hope as opposed to letting everything just completely overwhelm you. In addition to getting the stakes right and the fact that it just says, we're going to forget the exposition and the explanation and just give you characters that you care about, hopefully, and put them in these high-pressure situations. Another thing that stood out to me, Michael, is the way it treats trauma as a real thing for Mm -hmm. all of these people. Now, maybe that's an easy thing to say, but I think a lot of movies like this would, after that prologue, say, well, well, they've all moved on. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's still there. Of course, they're never going to forget. And in fact, for a long time, I I was wondering, I thought, are they really just dismissing this and kind of like, and and, and, and then it it loops back in. Like, none of them have moved on from it, and the movie deals with that, I think, in a real way. And the kids are legitimately suffering from trauma. And and I think that the, the movie shows us that. I think the fact that you've got a son who has a certain characteristic, which is, in his case, he's afraid. And we understand that. And maybe that's not what we would expect because he's the son and he's being groomed to be like his father. But that's not his natural instinct to be the one who maybe has that more resolve, whereas the daughter is the one who no, has the older that. Sibling, the yeah. older sibling. Yeah. The older sibling. And, and she, though, is racked by guilt. So they've got some characteristics that help, I think, define them, help us identify with them. And the fact that you have a father who is also dealing with his own kind of guilt and his own kind of shame, which we won't really get into, that dynamic between him and his daughter, I think for the most part is handled in a subtle way. Mm. It comes through 
in a more direct way later in the film, but I think that it does come through, and that seems like another thing the movie understands about human nature and about parent-child relationships, even if you would never want to admit that as a parent you might feel that way about one of your kids. Right, it does. And I think the film does work well enough to make you and everybody in the audience think, okay, how would I deal with the situation? Yes. <laughs> you know, and all this, you know how, how much of my old life, uh, my old family life, would I really try to maintain going? And that and this film, for better or for worse, it's a completely sincere, unironic embrace of family values. And it's the most family values friendly horror film, I guess if you want to call it that. Or, I don't know. What, how do you characterize this thing? And I don't know. It's running in two, three genres at once, really. But... Um, I think I think the reason it was a huge success opening weekend, and I suspect it will continue to do well, is that it really is kind of a red state, blue state crossover, yeah. you know, and not and not all films, even horror uh, genre items, can can make that claim. Yeah, I think it was smart in the way a lot of smart horror directors do it, in the way it doled out our glimpses of the monster. Very smart, right? Where the threat of that monster and our imagination, our notion of it is scarier than the real thing. Right. And I, I think that when we do finally see the real thing, it delivers. But the threat of it, I think, is what really stuck with me about these creatures. And I thought another nice touch, and maybe I'm misremembering this now, it sometimes happens this way with horror movies where you feel like they're gorier than they actually are, or they're less gory than mm-hmm. they actually are. But my experience with this film is, even though we've seen some deaths occur, the only moment, at least up to that point in the movie, and this is about halfway into the film, where I really noticed blood any type of blood whatsoever it it's in a bathtub scene and it has nothing to do with the monster it doesn't have to do with a monster clawing anybody or killing anybody in a gruesome way it's another really human moment right and it's not using the monsters for that sort of extended passage anyway they're much more fleeting glimpses and all that and i think that's that's effective one thing i'd love to talk to krasinski about is how much interaction and conversation he had with one of the producers michael bay who i think Mm. was half the reason this movie got going and krasinski worked with them on the benghazi film and I think Bay is a smart enough guy. I happen to detest almost all his work, but you know he's a smart enough producer to think, okay, this guy's premise sounds like it might get by, and it's it's just interesting enough. And okay, it's worth. And I'm sure Bay had a conversation or two saying, oh, let's it's worth seventeen million. Well, they made it back in ten minutes. Yeah, you know? and you know that I I think I think it'll be very curious to watch Krasinski's career because he is no joke suddenly an A-lister because of the opening weekend of this film and he could go a couple different ways is he going to make the, the the logical sequel this movie sets up for itself maybe so uh maybe he turns that over to somebody else you know is he really uh best pursuing more quote personal uh, family, you know, non-supernatural-based mm-hmm. dramas. Well, based on the two that I saw before this that he directed, The Hollers and Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, it's, it's. I don't know. I don't think that's where his strengths lie. I think he's, I, I think, you know, if you can judge a director by his acting, and I think in some ways it's, it's, it's sort of instructed to try, I think Krasinski's got a very sincere, open-hearted quality, yes. right? As on on screen and maybe behind the camera, and I think I think if he just sort of follows that where he goes, then maybe we'll see. I, I think 
But as I say, already I've had this uh, somewhat odd experience of, 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 you know, this film, A Quiet Place, creeping up a little bit higher than I may have yeah. considered it even a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so I'm a completely unreliable critic. In fact, <laughs> by the end of this sentence, I'm going to say it's sh- a shattering and beautiful masterpiece. <laughs> Maybe so. We'll give you a little bit more time with it. I love the ending of this film. We obviously won't get into I don't details. agree. I love it. No. I think it's perfectly economical. I think it, again... No allows the audience to fill in the blanks eh. and use our imagination no, in, in, in just the right way. Hmm. And even though it sets up, don't, don't even want to hear the sets up a potential sequel. I don't want to see it. <laughs> it's good where it ends. It's really like it. good okay, where yeah, it ends. Yeah, yeah. Well, it works for, it works like crazy with the audience. So okay. uh, for better, or for worse, it's my bloodlust, Michael. What can I say? I, I've, I've learned to live with it <laughs> too for many 10 westerns. years. Or, yeah. Too many Westerns. <laughs> too many Westerns. I grew right. up on. A Quiet Place is currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Coming up, we keep things on the QT very hush-hush. Our top five quiet scenes are next, along with your 2018 Film Spotting Madness champ. Stay with us. fast forward through it a little bit. I mean, I'm still watching it, but I had to speed it up a little bit because I couldn't take it. I was so close to tears. My wife, Sarah, was in tears. And I I was joking with you earlier, but I wasn't joking. I literally was just thinking about the movie all morning, driving to work. I got choked up just thinking about it in the car. Welcome back to Film Spotting from November 2006. Man, the sound of two grown men willing themselves not to cry. That was our review of Isao Takahata's 1988 film, Grave of the Fireflies. It was part of an early film spotting marathon, an animation marathon, mainly focusing on anime, actually. Takahata passed away on April 5th. He was 82 years old. Also made 2013's Tale of the Princess Kaguya, his final film, and only yesterday from 1991, which is one I need to catch up with. But Grave is one of those films, Michael, that I discovered because of doing this show. Mm. I discovered because of a marathon, recommendations from listeners, people who were much more astute about great animated films than I was at the time, and I am now, and it's... Just devastating, and it's a masterpiece. And I haven't seen it. You haven't? No. I'm I, uh, Seriously, a, a, a gap I must uh, fill. So. You should, yep. and yet it would be so hard for me to tell you, Michael, just rush out and watch Grave of the Fireflies because <laughs> it just it just No, I've heard like enough people. Uh, yeah, no, I remember, I mean, and I remember that show because I was new to film at that mm-hmm. point. And, uh, <laughs> no, I was. It, 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 I just moved over from, from theater at the Chicago really? Tribune. Yep, covering film, and I was listening to the show. 
Um, and and uh, you know, I thought, well, that's uh, you know, that sounds like you know, it's that kind of plaintive, truly moving stuff. Though you know, it's a different kind of pathos. It's a higher level, and it is. I'd love to see it, and I'd love to see it. We wanted to pay our tribute and respect to a great filmmaker, Isao Takahata. Next week. Possibly more crying, not just tears of joy with Josh returning, but we will also have a review of Lean on Pete, the latest from the director, whose last name is H-I-G-H. I think I've always said Andrew Hay. Mm-hmm. Some have said hi. One Google search tells me that it's Hegg. Hegg. You pronounce the G, Michael. Hegg. So don't quote me on that. I haven't consulted the film spotting pronunciation I like that. guide. I like that, and I really like the film. You did see Lean I've on seen Pete it. already. Yes, I've seen Weekend, Lean on Pete. Weekend, 45 years, both great films. Three really good films in a row. That, that's, that's a feat. And yeah, it's, it's uh, a movie about a runaway teen boy's relationship with a horse. Is that yeah, and it's, good but, it, it's the least sentimental boy and his horse movie you will ever imagine. Okay. Yep. Well, we'll see if we can avoid the overly sentimental ones next week on the show. We are going to do a top five animal companions, I guess. We'll That's look good. at movies that are about animal bonding, and we should have a fun time with that. We will see if more tears emerge. Earlier this week, we wrapped up our six-film Vincent Minnelli Marathon with 1958, Some Came Running, Frank Sinatra, Shirley MacLaine, Dean Martin in that one. If you want to hear those reviews, if you have some catching up to do, the subscribers of our podcast have gotten all of those in their feed at Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or you can listen directly at filmspotting.net. Michael, our in-house professor of Minnelli Studies, sat in for that conversation with me, as well as conversations about the bandwagon and the opening film, Cabin in the Sky. Yep. And I appreciate the, the – it's not a director – and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about him. It's, it's not a – he's not a director most people know as well as, as others now. And I think he's, he made a, a bewildering variety of movies in, in many different styles while always keeping his own style. So hmm. it's uh, – it's, I, I love talking about that Yeah. Guy. When Josh comes back, we will get some of his thoughts on Some Came Running and share our Vincent Minnelli Marathon Awards. We're calling them The Garland. So the best film, best performances, the best, I guess, Minnelli moment, whether it's a camera move or – Something about his visual approach. If you've been following along with the marathon and want to share your picks, we would love to feature them. Feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can call and leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Of course, you can email us an audio file as well. The full lineup for the Minnelli and other Film Spotting Marathons is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. The Minnelli Marathon is presented by Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe, whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece. Each film is hand-selected by experts every day. They introduce a new one, and then you've got 30 days to watch it. And our listeners can try Mubi for free. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. One of their highlights this week, Michael, did you see Kate Plays Christine from 2016? No, no. I did see this one. Robert Greene, uh, a documentary of sorts, a companion, what could be a great companion, to the movie Christine starring Rebecca Hall. This is, uh, one of my Caitlin favorite performances. Shields, right? Caitlin yeah. Shield, yeah. Caitlin Shield in Kate Plays Christine. And it takes the approach to the story of Christine Chubbuck, who was an anchor in Florida Mm -hmm. at a TV station and took her own life on air. Mm -hmm. Christine tells the narrative version of that. Kate plays Christine, takes the documentary approach, but in the form of an actual actress, Caitlin Scheel, taking on the role of playing Christine Chubbuck in what is ostensibly 
like a TV movie. And I've, I've heard good reports on this from various uh, festivals. Yeah. And, and uh, again, it's just a time is the enemy. I'd love to catch up it's with it. It's a curiosity. It's definitely worth seeing. I was a little bit mixed on it. Ultimately, do recommend it. I was mixed on it because of a choice the director makes at the very end of the film. And when it isn't kind of getting into its network style indictments of the media mm-hmm. and audiences and how they consume the news, it's at its best. Mm-hmm. And that whole notion, I think, that really stuck out to me, the, that central conceit of saying it's folly to try to portray anyone, really, especially <laughs> someone like Christine Chubbuck trying to get into her head. So Green says, let's at least explore that through someone having that struggle, someone as an actress trying to actually personify her and get into her head. We see the struggle of that. So definitely a movie worth seeing, and you can see it now over at Mubi. Again, you can try it free, movie.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, we also have movie passes we like to give away, including an advanced screening coming up for the new movie from director Jason Reitman and screenwriter Diablo Cody. They collaborated, of course, on Juno and also Young Adult. The new one is called Tully. Charlize Theron from Young Adult is back, as well as Mackenzie Davis. That movie opens on May 4th here in Chicago, and there is a screening on Tuesday, April 24th that we have those passes to excellent you can also enter to see the new documentary about the legendary supreme court judge ruth bader ginsburg the screening is april 25th the movie is called rbg i actually have already seen this film rbg Michael. and so have i okay i liked it i liked it too oh i liked it there was a lot i did not know about rbg tons of it and, 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 and it, now i feel more informed. so much of no honestly every, every all the, everything she did in the 70s that, that really kind mm-hmm. of in many ways paved the way for you know a lot of the legal ground that we're, we're on right now fascinating yeah it really is and if you want to see that movie and tully you can enter to win those passes now at filmspotting.net slash events all right tell me what to do okay uh you're giving her an injection of adrenaline straight to her heart, but she's got a breastplate. So you got to pierce through that. So what you got to do is you got to bring the needle down in a stabbing motion. I got I, I got to stab her three times. No, you don't got to stab her three times. You got to stab her once, but it's got to be hard enough to get through her breastplate into her heart. All right. All right? And then once you do that, you pr- press down on the, the plunger. Okay. Then what? Ha- then what happens? Kind of curious about that myself. This ain't no. F- get your adrenaline shots ready because we have another film spotting madness casualty. In fact. The final casualty. We've come to the end of Madness for this year. Time to declare our winner. We started with 64 of the best films of the 90s, according to us. So what is that worth, Michael? That's right. Last week, we got it down to just two, the championship matchup. The number one overall seed, Pulp Fiction, up against the number three overall seed from the Coen brothers, Fargo. And what better way, I think, to set this up than to hear from... A listener, we've gotten so much great feedback through this entire tournament. Let's hear from Christopher Redman. Hey, Adam and Josh. It's Christopher Redman here from DearCastingCrew.com. And I just wanted to take a quick step back. And instead of talking just about the subjective merits of Pulp Fiction and Fargo, instead talk a little bit about the years they were made and what that represents. Because I think when you're picking the best film of the decade, the year that it came out actually means a lot, whether that's subconscious or not. That's why I don't think Goodfellas or Silence of the Lambs even stood a chance. The best film of the 90s can't have come out in the year 1990 or 91 because those years are still responding to the 1980s in a lot of ways. I actually have a theory that the fourth year in any decade is the one that ends up defining that decade. And if not, at the very least, it sets the template for what will eventually define the decade. So look at 1994. 
it gave us the peak and valley of grunge music with the death of Kurt Cobain, the explosion of tabloid culture with O.J. Simpson and Tanya Harding, and it's considered the year of the internet when America finally went online, according to Time magazine. Pulp Fiction also represents so much about what we love about 90s films. It's an independent movie being commercially and critically successful. It cemented a new auteur voice, resurrected performers we love. It was inventive with the form and the non-chronological structure. So forget what the film is, because when it came out and what the film represents, I think is enough to make Pulp Fiction be considered forever the best film of the 1990s. Chris, a longtime listener and a very savvy cinephile and he makes a compelling argument i remember taking a college class once or part of the class anyway where we were working with a theater professor and we were watching films and talking about plays of the 1980s and 1989 really is one of the banner years if you go back in all of cinema but especially from the 80s it's 89 maybe there is something to those those years that see films closing out a decade, having a better perspective on that decade somehow, Michael, and we should give those movies more acclaim. Yeah, I like that. Those films that kind of like park it right at the uh, the jump year, you know, the, the, like the, the the year that ends or begins mm-hmm. a decade. You know, you think of Godard's Breathless in 59, yep. leaping into the future, you know, and other films not really, yeah. I mean, you think of the, when you think of the 50s, the 50s were really the 50s up until... 62 63 yeah you know culturally and musically and other and otherwise but um, yeah i like i like that idea there's a whole thesis to be written on that there is and chris arguing that pulp fiction be considered forever the best film of the 90s if he had just left this voicemail you know four weeks ago we wouldn't have even had to do any of this nonsense <laughs> michael we just could have crowned pulp fiction the champion bingo we also heard from eric hill in fredericton new brunswick canada all of our canadian listeners chiming in this week eric says a fitting conclusion best film of the 90s mm. versus best film from the 90s i observed a curious thing as this year's madness played out it was the strange lack of outrage as films some of them my favorite were stricken down one after another in fact with the exception of miller's crossing my earliest favorite coen brothers film losing in the first round to jurassic park i felt only little prickles of sentimentality as the matrix or fight club or terminator 2 were derezzed ko'd or terminated as i listened to your discussion about ready player one it occurred to me that maybe my mostly okayness with losing these movies is because i connected with them more as elements of nostalgia from the early development of my film nerd leanings than as pantheon deserving works of art fargo is most definitely an exception to that nostalgic classification it stands as both the best film by and the best distillation of everything that is magical about the cone brothers their ability to turn a petty scheme in a mundane locale into a sweeping operatic tale is astonishing and funny and gruesome and touching it's just an amazing film regardless of what decade contains it but Fargo faces a tough opponent in Pulp Fiction, the kind of ur symbol of 90s film culture. Pulp Fiction has all the noisy coolness, the soundtrack support, and the college dorm posters carrying it out of the 90s into the current collective consciousness. And that's precisely why I can't vote for it. Because a vote for Pulp Fiction is mostly a vote for nostalgia. I, I, I like this. And in the case of younger film spotters, an adopted nostalgia. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, whereas a vote for Fargo is a vote for a masterful movie by filmmakers whose glory days were just beginning and continue on today. Give it up for New Brunswick, Canada. Yeah, there you go, Eric. You have certainly persuaded Michael Phillips. We also heard from Ben Christ here in Chicago. Hi, Adam and Josh. It's time we bring some Moneyball-style sports analytics to Film Spotting Madness. That's what we needed. I'm a particle... More analyzing. 
<laughs> and we need more particle physicists. I'm a particle physicist, he says, working at Fermilab in Batavia, just outside Chicago. I took a stab at trying to predict the outcome of the final film spotting madness match using a popular algorithm in the field of artificial intelligence known as a neural network. I trained the neural network using publicly available data from the movie database and group lens and the outcomes of the previous film spotting madness matches in this season's bracket. The neural network predicts there is a 95% chance that Pulp Fiction will be our champion. Hmm. However, tests of the model show that it is only about 73% accurate. Nate Silver up in here. Yes, yes. Or uh, Paul Rudd and Anchorman with right. the, uh, the cologne that... Uh, 60% of the time it works every time. So, <laughs> Anyway, so Fargo, in, under that percentage, still has a chance. If there are any other data scientist film spotting fans out there, I would love to collaborate to bring the accuracy up for next year's tournament. Yeah, that's a film spotting meetup we all need to go to. Fermilab? Yeah. Well, we need the... Not Fermilab, oh, okay. Michael. <laughs> though I'm sure they'd so be we happy a- to we, have We us. should ask them, though. <laughs> I'm thinking about the gathering of film spotting listeners who are also... Data, data scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, or like particle that. physicists in any way, shape, or form. Do you get the feeling they would always, <laughs> nobody would bring money for, for drinks, though? They I would, do, actually. Yeah, yeah, I get the feeling. <laughs> well, we can buy those. We will link to Ben's code in the notes for this show if you are smart enough to decipher it. So, 95% chance Pulp Fiction will win. 73% chance, though, that that's accurate. And, Michael, you can do the honors. Which movie is our film spotting oh, madness? Oh my gosh. 2018 champion. Look at that. I'm looking at it. Results Pulp Fiction, 46%. Fargo, 54. 54%. The nice. heck happened here? Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Two years in a row, Pulp Fiction has made it to the championship round only to lose. In last year's Pantheon Madness, Pulp Fiction lost out to The Godfather. Two years ago in Director's Madness, it was the Cone Brothers totally dominating that tournament. They beat Paul Thomas Anderson in the final. Fargo is a movie that is not currently in the film spotting pantheon, but that it may is change. Now. It, it should is, be. Yes. It should be. And I like when this, Josh I like this we'll outcome. It. And I think Pulp Fiction in both cases lost to the better film. Okay. Well, I love both movies. I love both movies. So that was a very difficult choice. And ultimately, I think I'm happy that there was a surprise result here. I really did think at the outset Pulp Fiction would take it. Now, the most important result here is our bracket contest. Next year, Michael, we're going to make you fill out one too. Mm. But for now, it's me, it's Sam, it's Josh, and the founding father of Film Spotting Madness, Mike Merrigan, longtime listener. You heard me say it last week. If Pulp Fiction won, I won the tournament. Josh finished last. If Fargo won it all, Mike would win, I'd finish second, and Josh would still finish last. And in this case— <laughs> This is why he's on the road. Yeah, that's, that's, he's trying to avoid his punishment here, but he can run, but he can't hide. <laughs> Matthew Johnson with a comment here. He says, my favorite film of all time is Tarkovsky's Stalker. Most of my friends are annoyed by the pretentiousness of things I watch on a regular basis, yet I have a confession. I get a sick enjoyment out of watching every Adam Sandler movie that arrives on Netflix. I'm calling Josh out. I think he secretly wants an excuse to watch these and is purposely throwing his vote to enjoy this honor. Indeed, that's his punishment for the third year in a row. Mm. He has to watch. What is it about Adam Josh Larson? Josh Larson just invites this sort of like heavy psychoanalysis. That's know? it. I think yeah. he does. But yeah. he's apparently a glutton for punishment. He is self-sabotaging, Matthew is arguing. So, Josh, we hope you're listening. Your 2018 Adam Sandler movie is called The Week Of. <laughs> It stars Sandler and Chris Rock. And this year's Madness MVP, Steve Buscemi, fittingly, he was in seven movies in Film Spotting Madness. He's also in your Punishment film, 
the week of. <sighs> it debuts on Netflix April 27th. Set your calendars. Josh, we can put you in touch with Matthew and maybe you guys can live tweet it or something like that. Before we put Film Spotting Madness to rest for another year, let's hear from this year's champ, the godfather of Film Spotting Madness himself, Mike Merrigan, Dover, New Hampshire. Hello, Adam, Josh, Sam, and Film Spotting Nation. This is Mike Merrigan, founding father of Film Spotting Madness. Congratulations to all of us for surviving another Madness tournament. From the lunacy of the Big Lebowski versus Groundhog Day to the Matrix's surprise run to the Elite Eight ahead of films like Train Spotting and Unforgiven, to that time Adam betrayed his heart and turned his back on Richard Linklater, and yes, Josh's annual last place finish, we've had a little bit of everything this tournament. Now, technically I won, and yes, technically it was because I alone had the courage to go with the underdog rather than the 90s Goliath, but I don't want you guys to see yourselves as the losers here. Instead, I'd like you to imagine yourselves as Norm Gunderson sitting in bed celebrating that your mallard got the three-cent stamp. Sure, people don't much use the three-cent, but oh, for Pete's sake, of course they do. Every time they raise the darn postage, people need the little stamps. Enjoy your little stamps, guys. To everybody out there at Film Spotting Nation and all of you, sincerely, thank you for another fantastic tournament. I hope everybody had as much fun as I did, and I'm wondering if it's too early to get a start on next year's brackets. I think I have a problem. Bye, guys. Our thanks to everyone who participated. Of course, our thanks to Mike Merrigan and our congrats to him on winning this year's tournament. To answer Mike's question, yes, there is Film Spotting Madness 2019 already in the works. We are jumping ahead another decade. It's the best of the 2000s, meaning 2000 to 2009. Not only is it in the works, but Sam and I have already sketched out the short list of movies. We've got 83 movies in contention for those 64 slots. No, it's just, just there will be blood. <laughs> well, we're, we're done. You can skip. You can move. Spoiler alert, probably the number one seed. There's a chance it would be the number two seed, Michael, with oh, the Coen oh, brothers. No, no country, country for, for old men. men. No, I know no, how you feel no. about it. I just but feel like again, we're, we're not doing it based on our feelings, though I love both films. It's about what we think will win. So that's, that's a toss-up. Yeah. You have to admit. If you were seeding him, No Country might get the number one seed? Uh, Yes, I would have to admit that. Okay. We have that list already started. We talked about this over the past couple weeks. Listeners who want to be more prepared for Film Spotting Madness, they said, could you guys put the list of movies up earlier than you've been doing it Hmm. instead of waiting until the tournament basically starts? Since we'd already gotten a jump on this, we said, yep, you know what? We'll wait until January 1st, and you'll have three months to get started. Got an email from a teacher recently, Michael, who said, that's great, but, you know, I've got Christmas break. I've got some of December off. Could you post it even earlier Hmm. so I could take advantage of that? I thought, why are we even waiting? Why wait till then? Why don't we just post the list? So it's not the final list by any means. I know people, like, they already have on Letterboxd. They have already started dissecting it, and they're arguing about all the movies we left off, and they're saying, wait, why do you have three Bourne movies on there? We're not going to put all three Bourne movies on there, but they're going to compete against each other as a play-in game. We're not going to put all the Lord of the Rings movies on there but we'll put one of them. The whole list, though, if you really want to get a jump on Film Spotting Madness, that list will be available, not only on Letterboxd, but we have them all available. They're all listed at filmspotting.net slash madness. I have three of the 83 titles listed I have to catch up with before next year, and the big one is one of my true blind spots, one of my real shames. Which is? 
Edward Yang's Yi Yi oh. is one I have not seen. Oh, yeah. So it's definitely one of the films that's going to make the final 64, and I've got a little bit of time to what watch What are the other two? The other two happen to be a couple of those Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... I didn't, I didn't see them all either. Less looking forward to those, but it's about time yeah. I finally was not unhappy. Was not unhappy to still be reviewing theater for the Tribune at that, <laughs> at that time. I mean, I, 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 they're good. They're, they're good for what they are. I, I've I pointed this out before. I saw the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, and really liked it. So there's really no good reason that I shouldn't like the other two. Right. This is why, I'm this is, I this is why we, we can appreciate this madness. Yep. So Film Spotting Madness for this year is wrapped up. You can start working on next year, and I will point you once again to our webpage with all the madness details, including the bracket. You can see how all the matches played out and past tournaments as well. Again, filmspotting.net slash madness. Let's now get to this week's Film Spotting Top 5, Quiet Scenes. And why not start it out with another voicemail? Hey, Film Spotting. This is Jeff Milo in Fernail, Michigan, and I'm just looking ahead to some quiet scenes that uh, you'll be talking about, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to talk about this scene. It's the first Mission Impossible's uh, scene of a, a suspended dissension into the, the, the CIA vault. Uh, I fondly recall, with just kind of awe, that uh, for a beautiful moment when I was in the theater seeing this, uh, you could hear a pin drop. It was just Tom Cruise upside down in a setting that looks like it's maybe in the same dimension as, as the bedroom from 2001. Uh, it's so stunning to look at and uh, to experience. I think that's, that's just something uh, De Palma likes to do is, is make you uncomfortable or, or self-aware or uh, uh, voyeuristic, uh, like you're sneaking in somewhere. This scene is, is great because it, it not only makes you stay quiet as a viewer, but uh, for me and for maybe for others, it makes you hold your breath because even you don't want to be responsible getting Ethan Hunt caught. Great show, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Been a while since we've had a Jeff contribution to the top five. We are sharing our top five quiet scenes, a tie-in, of course, with A Quiet Place. And, Michael, I think there are a lot of ways we could come at this top five, defining what we mean by quiet in this instance. Are we talking about scenes that really have no sound at all, except what might be happening in the scene, no dialogue, no music? Are we talking about scenes that are just free of dialogue and maybe they have some score supplementing it? How did you approach it? Easy to talk about the things I left off. I didn't want to deal with any actual silent films. I didn't really care about this idea of no dialogue. I think some of the scenes I picked, you know, I do have some dialogue. Okay. They're just just not the usual conventional amount. I'm often music hypersensitive, so in some cases, films or scenes that are otherwise pretty quiet but have a pretty aggressive musical score don't really fit my definition of yeah, quiet. I'm so with you there. In and out, in and out. So, but that that's basically the parameters. Pretty wide. Yeah. No, I'm with you. No silent movies. I didn't include any movies that had no dialogue entirely, and there aren't that many to choose from, but a movie like The Tribe that came out recently has no dialogue at all. And I also tried to avoid movies that are mostly dialogue-free, movies that rely on visuals way more than they rely mm -hmm. on sound and on talking amongst the characters. So a movie like The Tree of Life, for example, is one I probably didn't really hmm. consider. Three Iron, the Kim Ki-duk film, Elephant, even Jacques Tati's Playtime. And then there are these other movies that are really about loneliness and isolation. So there's not a lot of talking, whether it might be something like Castaway or All is Lost, All is the lost, recent yeah. Robert Redford film, even the ones that take place in space, 2001, not a lot of talking. 
Great film, also in the Pantheon, so not eligible. Solaris. Wait, 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 wait. Not eligible? Not eligible. What about for me? It's eligible for you, Michael. Because I'm not, I, I'm You're just. You're not here every week. Well, you don't, a, have, to, I have, you don't I have, have to play by our rules. No, I have a day pass to the Pantheon. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's a guest pass. Another film we both love, I know, Nuri Bilga Jalon's Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, I think is is already a film that relies a lot on silence. So having certain scenes that really stand out because of them. Harder. Yeah, harder to choose. And I, I didn't really pick many of those. Another good example would be something like Brisson's A Man Escaped, right. an entire film based on its sound design and the lack of dialogue. So tried to pick movies that are maybe more traditional and how they use sound and how they incorporate dialogue, but have these really standout moments and scenes. I also just randomly sort of decided I wasn't going to go with any Bergman films. Not that they're <laughs> not fantastic, but there's just so many to choose from the silence. It's were all you, about were the you silence. traumatized by, a, by some sort of taciturn Swede in no. your youth? No, I love these films. I okay. love almost all these Bergman films, but I just decided you can't to think throw of, them and out. There's not a single taciturn Swede that traumatized you no, in your can't youth. can't think of one. Final bit of setup here, a great scene that gets at something you talked about when we were reviewing A Quiet Place. Hmm. That's a film that you said, yes, relative to a lot of other films, it's a quiet movie. But to say it's quiet is a little bit misleading because there are a lot of jump scares and there are a lot of loud noises and the score is pretty prominent. Something like the Miller's Crossing Danny Boy scene that we talked about during our no dialogue. Cow discussion. <laughs> right. No dialogue, yes. but the Danny Boy music obviously well, you got fills gun, everything. You got fire. You got so much noise yeah. there, but it is a scene that's dialogue-free, so probably eligible for a list like this, and I certainly did consider it, but didn't actually include it. So, with all that said, we're going to jump in. Your number five, quiet scene. Okay, North by Northwest. We're, I'm starting very famous. Okay, Good. The, the crop duster scene. This is a scene where Cary Grant has been told to meet his, you know, this mysterious operative, George Kaplan, who he's been mistaken for, out somewhere two and a half hours outside Chicago in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. Of course, it's actually near Fresno, California, but so be it. So this scene, which is really kind of epic in length because it's like seven, eight minutes, has very little dialogue and has no music by Bernard Herrmann, whose music you tend to notice when it's there. It doesn't have any music from him until the very end of the scene when the plane actually crashes into the oil truck. But for most of that picture, it's a fascinating contrast to the entire rest of the story and the this, this swirl of improbable craziness that Hitchcock and Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, have cooking up for us. And I just love the way it does things visually that really bring out the lack of conventional sound and music and that you have my favorite shot in that whole crop duster scene before the plane actually shows up is Cary Grant on one side of Highway 41 and Malcolm Atterbury playing, you know, this this farmer with five lines of dialogue on the other side of the highway. And that's a beautiful use of widescreen because all you see is desolate, empty mm-hmm. highway and two men looking at each other wondering if they need to strike up a conversation. It's like an epic moment out of Samuel Beckett practically. Yeah. But it's Samuel Beckett if he wrote for Hitchcock. So, <laughs> so I love, I mean, I love, I love the, I've looked at this scene how many times since I saw it for the first time as a teenager, I don't know, a hundred. And it still has a lot of real magic and power and kind of an unsettling black humor to it. That It's Hitchcock in a nutshell. And yeah. I love this scene. Hitchcock had to be referenced somewhere. On this list. Well, between this, I just did it. You just did it. Thank just you for it. checking that box. Rear Window, Vertigo, so many great films. The Birds, you could choose from a lot of scenes. My number five is the 
seen from the end, the climax of The Silence of the Lambs, the great Jonathan Demme film, the number four overall seed in Film Spotting Madness, did very well when Clarice is being stalked by Buffalo Bill in the basement of his house. This is the scene that starts with Jodie Foster's Clarice entering the house, and it's all her point of view, basically. We see what she looks at. The last shot before the lights go completely black, it's her seeing a decomposed body in a bathtub. And then when that cut to black happens, the next thing we see is Buffalo Bill's point of view through those green night vision goggles. And now we're looking at Clarice. And then for the next two minutes, it's this silent cat and mouse game with Bill and us really as the viewer being the cat. And of course, Clarice is the mouse. And there are occasional cuts back to his face, those straight-on Demi close-ups that we're so used to, except here we're not able to see his eyes. We're looking straight on at those goggles. And mostly it's a great scene, and it's so effective. Jeff talked about the Mission Impossible scene and kind of holding your breath on behalf of the characters. That's how I feel watching this scene from The Silence of Lambs. We're in this terrifying position of hearing Clarice's terror, her breathing. And we identify with that while also being in the more comfortable position, I suppose, of being the stalker who has the advantage of sight. Demi keeps us always in that position. And then it's sound that literally triggers the climax that happens. He tries to cock a gun to shoot at her. That alerts her to his position. And throughout the whole scene, there is some score. I had to turn this up really loudly to hear it today, Michael, but for those two minutes... There's just this slight hum that I think is a Demi addition to the scene, Hmm. but it's really subtle. It's barely there. It kind of just adds to the mood of it, and then it's amplified when the tension really increases. Demi's just a master overall, certainly a master with sound and a master of not using sound. Right. I I still remember what the audience sounded like back in 91 when I saw that picture. I was out visiting a friend of mine in Seattle, and I think it was up there on a work assignment. But uh, that was – it was a peculiar mixture of – horror movie shrieks, but yes. then they realized they had to settle into this scene that was going to spin out another minute or two. Right. And as conflicted as I am about Silence of the Lambs, unlike you. Apparently. Let's not talk about it here. <laughs> another yeah, but, show. But uh, yeah, but it, that scene was was fiendishly effective. Yes. It still is. Well, let's see how effective your number four is. Uh, there Will Be Blood. The okay. opening, opening. So long, good. long, long sequence, you know, and then really several different sequences, but we see Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis, this is the very beginning of the 20th century, and we see Plainview down in the mine shaft, and he's just struggling against the elements in this very tight, you know, confined space, and takes a, a really beautiful and kind of frightening fall down this shaft and you know, injures himself. And we just see him kind of, you know, trying to, in a real animalistic way, just sort of like fighting the elements in his own pursuit of wealth, and none of it is conveyed in words. Nope. A lot of it is conveyed in Johnny Greenwood's music. Yes. And it kind of breaks my own rule about picking a scene for this list that has a really aggressive musical soundtrack uh, scoring going on. But but it's it's too but damn... it's so atypical. And it's too damn good yes. to ignore. Greenwood's music is great. And, and it, it just... I've, that is... Uh, it's probably my favorite film of the first decade of this century. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if it still is, but it was at one time. And that scene is uh, really never even topped in the movie itself. I think. Yeah, he's got no one to talk to, so there's no reason for him to speak anyway, but it's really just about his actions, his determination. He's a man of few words. It's it's a wonder, right. that, that entire opening sequence and that entire film. My number four is going back to 1974 
Francis Ford Coppola, very famous silent scene. Oh, great pick. The end of the conversation, the bug hunt. Gene Hackman stars as Harry Call. He is a surveillance expert, Mm -hmm. and he's got some guilt over an incident that occurred with a previous job where some people that he was following got hurt. We don't really hear a whole lot about that, as I recall. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. Now he's been hired on another job that he has some doubts about, and he's worried that something like that may happen again. And as this whole situation sorts itself out and he learns some things, maybe he would be better off not knowing. At the end of the movie, we see him. He's a jazz guy. He's just kind of playing his saxophone in his apartment and he gets a phone call. And there's the line that is the last line of the film. Hello. We know that you know, Mr. Cole. For your own sake, don't get involved any further. We'll be listening to you. And then for the next two minutes, we see Hackman in total silence moving throughout his apartment, searching everything, turning it all upside down for a bug because on the phone they played back to him his saxophone playing. So he knows that they somehow actually (laughs) do have him wired. And when he turns up nothing initially, he gets more serious. The score actually shifts to David Shire's piano tinkling. And then there's a third shift in the scene where we now see his apartment totally decimated, which seems to be this reflection of his state of mind. It's total chaos and disarray. The music also reflects that. It's now the piano. It's not the tinkling that we're getting before, but someone seemingly raking their hands over the the strings on the piano. And there's some great subtle touches throughout the whole sequence. We know that he's got some guilt, of course, about his profession. There's an early scene where he's confessing to a priest. And in the early part of the scene, he's looking in or under everything he can find, there's this bookcase with a bunch of items on it and knickknacks. One of them's the Virgin Mary. And he stops there and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't desecrate the Virgin Mary statue in any way. But he comes back in the second part and it's the only thing left on the shelf. And he hesitates and he ponders it for a second and then just totally destroys it. Coppola there and Walter Murch, the great sound designer here on The Conversation, they amplify that because the score completely goes out at that point and we just get the sound of that statue shattering as he hits it repeatedly. So it just punctuates the the relative serenity of the scene with that noise and it really seems to be the launch of his descent, his willingness to even break that statue in that moment. He's now kind of abandoned everything. This is a movie that a lot of times gets lumped in with Watergate coming out in 1974 and and seeming so timely, this notion of surveillance. And there's an article that came out on Slate a few years back that I'll link to in our show notes. If anyone wants to read it at filmspotting.net, it concludes like this, which was worse, the violation of his privacy or that he was outbugged possibly by someone better. For Coppola, quote, the tearing down of the room was synonymous with a kind of personal tearing down rooted in Harry's overwhelming guilt. In the end, it occurred to Coppola that he hadn't made a, quote, film about privacy as he had set out to do, but rather a film about responsibility. In that sense, finally, the conversation was not about Nixon at all, but what the age of Nixon had taken away. Hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why it's still a very timely movie. It's about a lack of faith in these institutions. It's about a lack of responsibility, a lack of faith in yourself as an individual and those around you collectively. It's, and it's got a real existential chill to it. It really does. And it, you know, it's, it, I think it holds up much better than a lot of the paranoid thrillers of the same time, yeah. Three Days of the Condor and other things, because, because Coppola – cooked up the idea for the conversation years before Watergate. And there's something there's something about it that worked then. It worked, God knows it worked during the Watergate era. And it still works now because it's also, no one could play 
a recessive character more interestingly than Gene Hackman. So true. And the one time I interviewed Hackman way back around Hoosier's time, he was still beating himself up about not being enough of a draw to get people, a mainstream audience, to give that movie a try. Really? Yep. Yep. Wow, yep. such a good actor. But, I mean, look at Coppola's year. That was the same year as Godfather Part, Part two, 2, which is better than Godfather Part 1. I mean, and the conversation may even be greater than that. So mm. that's two great films. All right. Well, we've mentioned four pretty good films so far in our top five quiet scenes, and we will have three more picks each coming up next. Stay with us. sharing our top five quiet scenes. You heard the payoff of that very quiet scene, the showdown opposite a hotel door, Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin's Llewellyn Moss from what I think is a pretty great Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. Michael, I feel like we've kind of been arguing about that movie for 10 years. Right. And it will continue. It will continue until you, you know, eventually see the wisdom of the other point of view. Yeah, and and that very well could happen, but not for this top five. Not this time. (laughs) Though it is just an honorable mention for me in this top five, Quiet Scenes, a tie-in with our review of the new film directed by John Krasinski, A Quiet Place. So we're mainly focusing on scenes that have no dialogue or very little dialogue, Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases very little scoring as well. And Michael, we're ready for your number three. My number three is Steve McQueen's film 12 Years a Slave and the the most striking – passage in it is where Chiwetel Ejiofor as Solomon Northrup is lynched and left to hang in this plantation down in Louisiana. And it's a long, long take. He's got his rope, you know, he's got the rope around his neck and he's struggling to remain on tiptoes so he does not actually hang himself. And he's left there for an entire day. And all this time, life is going on all around him. We see the plantation slaves going about their business, trying not to care. We hear the birds in the trees. There is no, and this is how the editor put it, there is no, quote, friendly cut that would let the audience off the hook. As in so many other yeah. scenes like this, uh, whether it's a slave narrative, whether it's an actual lynching scene or not, you don't. You are never, ever asked to just simply sit there calmly or as cal- visually. It's a calm composition, mm-hmm. middle distance shot, and we see it happen, and it's going on and on, and we and you actually begin to think this is not fiction. Uh, I mean, and in fact, it wasn't fiction because it was a true slave narrative. But this is not a dramatization. I feel closer. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get out of it in in a much more urgent and and sort of immediate way than I have ever experienced. And none of it felt exploitive or cheap or or, or like a, a like a gimmick. I just simply felt like it was all these de- decisions. 
combining to just make you lean in and listen at the same time you're trying to lean out and stop it from happening. It's really something else. Yeah, it's a great pick, and you're right, a harrowing scene. My number three comes from a film that we've discussed here on the show, Michael, with you, a sacred cow discussion a few years back, I think 2012 maybe, even around the time of the release of Lincoln, we talked about Close Encounters of the Third Uh, Kind. and Which scene? There are a lot of options, right? You could go with, among others— Barry's abduction, one of my all-time favorite Steven Spielberg scenes, and that entire sequence really works because of its mixture of sound and silence. But the culmination of that scene, I love too, when that UFO finally disappears and the mom screams, tail off in the distance too, and it's just eerily quiet. But that's not the one I'm going with, Michael. I'm actually going with Roy's first UFO encounter, the famous sequence. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's great. So Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, he's out on this idyllic Midwestern night. He's an electric lineman in Indiana. He's lost out in the country, stops along these train tracks, gets his map out, and you hear the crickets chirping, and that's about it. Then this UFO appears behind him. We see it, but notably don't hear it, and he doesn't either. He just assumes it's a car and motions for them to go around him. Then the mailboxes start rattling, and then there's this moment, this amazing moment when the light shines on him from above. And when that happens, there's that sound effect that yeah. you just made. I just made I it. think you were the sound effects guy, the Foley artist, if you will, Thank on you. that film. But then after that, there's silence. And I was turning it up today to try to hear it, and there there might be this slight hum. There's just this, this slight hum as the truck is bathed in that glow, but it otherwise feels like silence. And just that bit of quiet makes it even more otherworldly and unnatural. And then we get his breathing, and the ship is over him, all that diegetic sound of everything going crazy within the truck. And then it just stops, and we get silence again. There's maybe a frog, I think, that we hear then a dog bark, and then the crickets return. Mm -hmm, And everything mm -hmm. seems to be back to normal, except, of course, things will never be normal again for Roy. And that final moment, the the, just the, the beautiful finale of that scene is he looks up, and it's that huge ship now going overhead. Right. And it, too, is barely making a sound. It seems as close to silence as we could get on that night with that ship going over the top of them. Yeah, you could argue that's as great a two minutes as Spielberg's ever made. I, yeah. And I think for the reasons you're absolutely saying. And tellingly, John Williams' music shuts the hell up. Yep. You, it is not to be heard. He knew, and I'm sure Spielberg had a say in this, he knew when to back off and literally mm-hmm. get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. You're number two, Michael. My number two is uh, the film that probably the fewest listeners may have taken the three hours and 21 minutes to actually watch, but Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman. Oh, man. I mean, I, I knew you were going to shame me with a pick, and this is it. Uh, well, this is this is my one, you know, highbrow pick, okay? So uh, the whole film is basically a three-hour and 21-minute moment of intense solitude and isolation and in many ways quietude it's a it's it's a film that just simply rides and falls on the daily routine of a middle-aged widow as she makes the beds cooks dinner for her son and then as as the scenes develop turns the occasional trick okay so mm-hmm. she's this is how she's dealing with you know financial and maybe grief matters right the film is an absolute crafty feminist manifesto about what what can happen when you when you fall into this routine and confine a woman to this sort of life. It's deadly methodical. But then halfway through Ackerman's film, 
At the end of the second day of this routine, the woman puts money from a customer in a jar but does not replace the lid. Very unusual for her. The potatoes on the stove, they're overcooked. This is a crisis. A fork hits the floor, and I remember—I still remember seeing this thing for the first time in the early 80s at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. And when that fork hit the floor, it was like this sort of like— Catastrophe. Moment, and it was just—it <laughs> was—it was a killer. And I've never—I'd never experienced anything like that, and I'd never seen a film anything like it before. And I still haven't seen one since like this. And mm. I don't know. I, I think the film—you can—you can see it. it's just the world's greatest thesis film. And usually, films that operate on one idea and one thesis and sort of one very narrow, aggressive strategy tend to lose interest for me after maybe let's say hour three goes by but this film to me is a three hour as i say three hour and 21 minute moment and it's it i've never seen a film use a lack of human dialogue or even just sort of conventional domestic sound uh, you know I, i've never seen a film like it period hmm. so well, what did it's you quiet. say about Jean Dielman feminist manifesto? Yeah, was mm-hmm. that the the phrase? It's the you quietest used? feminist manifesto you can imagine. Okay, well, I, I think just a great companion to that. My number two pick, Sergio Leone was up to the same, right? With feminist manifesto, yes, yes, it's it's so good on women. <laughs> yeah, film. I'm going with the opening, the waiting for a harmonica sequence leading into the opening gunfight actually came from longtime listener, a great writer and critic, Melissa Taminga, who was also part of the film spotting advisory board. She said this scene might be too noisy, but the first that comes to mind is that opening scene oh, that's great. from Once Upon a Time in the West. And it is just such a joy to watch. I'm taking it from the beginning of the credits when we first see those appear. It's a seven minute sequence. And at the risk of just cataloging the noises, we get the wind is really the the most prominent actor in the scene. And then the boots on the boards as a couple of these hitmen, three men sent to meet someone getting off a train. We hear them stepping. We hear the old windmill bleeding like a dying that's, sheep, yeah, that's right? Great. The windmill's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the slow rocking chair that a character is sitting in. Then even the sound of the telegram coming through. Drips of water, a fly trapped in the barrel of the gun. Everything about it is just oddly menacing because it's so heightened and we're so attuned to every little sound and then the train appears we get the whistle that loud noise and finally the character they're waiting for does appear charles bronson's harmonica and it's sound that really does kick off all of the action because they're looking for this passenger they don't see him they start to walk away the camera shows these three men in the foreground they're facing us they've turned their backs but then harmonica starts playing the harmonica we see him back there as the train passes before they do they hear that sound they turn around and that's then the first dialogue that occurs about eight minutes into this film you bring a horse for me well looks like we're (laughs) looks like we're shy one horse (laughs) you brought two too many Finally, the burst of violence we've been waiting for, then the burst of noise. Followed by that windmill again. It all comes back to that windmill sound. I just saw this movie probably about 10 years ago, Michael. It was one of those real blind spots for me that film spotting listeners, when they were saying, I can't believe you haven't seen this movie. Mm -hmm. They were trying to include it in so many top fives, and I hadn't seen it. And... I knew from those first eight, nine, ten minutes that 
I was going to be hooked. Am I remembering this right where Jack Elam is basically waging this sort of mini battle with the fly? Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great a great detail. Uh, and and I think Jack Elam in close-up is not anybody's idea of quiet. But, no. But yet it's silent. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> no, yes, I love that. You know, look, Tarantino's been trying to, you know, oh, trying to... without a doubt. Trying to fill pauses the way Leone does and try to stretch things out in sort of this uh, conscious, artful way, the way he'll never... He'll, he just doesn't have it in him. <laughs> I, I'm here to dismiss Tarantino. Okay, okay? I'm not great. here to validate your choice, which is excellent, by the way. Okay, well, thank you. Let's hear your number one. It's so damn predictable. I couldn't. I didn't want to avoid. It's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Great. When, when Hal takes care of astronaut Frank Poole, when he yeah. when he he doesn't want to deal with him anymore. You know, he did the questioning. <laughs> the you know his paranoid side is coming out, and he just and that horrible, wonderful, tragic comic moment where he snips the 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 cord the the umbilical cord and there goes frank floating in this really chilling way just floating off to his death mm-hmm. and the scene is long like kubrick has that sadistically prolonged way about him in so many scenes like this throughout his career but as this man soundlessly floats to kind of an awful you know, just quiet death. Uh, it's it, it's it's still the best thing in the in the part of that of that confounding picture that even if you struggle against a lot of two thousand and one, everything to do with Hal is so conventionally gripping. Yes, you know, because it is it is it is human against machine. And for now, you know, machine, it's machine seven, human zero. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love every aspect of the technique. There are there are flourishes in 2001 that look dated now. You can talk about the Stargate sequence. You can talk about a lot of things. But to me, it's always going to be Kubrick's final great film. I don't think he made a great film after it. And I think that scene is as great as anything in it. Well. It's hard to match up to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just that good of a film. It's a great pick. And I know we joked earlier, it's in the film spotting pantheon. Yes. You're exempt from I'm that. exempt. I have you, my day you pass. Get to, you get to go ahead and include that movie. And that's only fair of me to say because, quick note, on last week's show, we got a tweet from a listener named Neil who pointed out to me that on the show— with Tasha Robinson, we shared our top five movie homages, mm-hmm. a list inspired by Ready Player One. I had Oliver Stone's baton toss in the parade sequence at the beginning of Born on the Fourth of July hmm. as my number five. It's a direct reference to the Dawn of Man sequence and the oh, bones right, right. going up in the air. Right. Well, 2001, of course, in the Pantheon, means these films that we've put away, they're so good and such good choices for most top five lists that they're not eligible for these lists. I included it. So Neil called me out. I feel bad about that. Now I'm going to call myself out, Michael. I did it twice. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Also in the Pantheon. Uh, but I included its homage to Night of the Hunter, the love and hate speech. Love and hate, that's so right. So I cheated twice last week. I certainly can't call anyone else out for cheating. Okay. Well, it, it, confession is good for the soul. It is. My number one quiet scene Probably the most obvious choice I've listed, but for good reason, just like 2001, I don't think you can talk about quiet scenes, certainly dialogue-free scenes in movies without talking about Jules Dassin's Rafifi. The extended heist sequence, the robbery, which is somewhere between 24 and 30 minutes, depending on who you're reading. I haven't got out the, the stopwatch there, and I know for a fact 
that Josh feels bad about not being here for this list because I'm pretty sure it would be his number one. He actually wrote about Rafifi and this sequence in his book, Movies Are Prayers. Right. So That's right. he can't be here. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Josh. He says, Often we don't realize the power of sound in cinema until it's completely taken away. One of the films that comes closest to doing this and sustains the conceit for a good twenty four minutes is 1955's Rafifi, a French crime drama. The movie's centerpiece sequence is the elaborate heist of a jewelry store which four burglars break into through the ceiling of the apartment above. As the thieves enter the dark apartment and the music fades away, our eyes and ears instantly come to attention. We're going to need them more than usual. As the camera pans the room following an ashlight beam, we both peer and listen more closely. We watch the hand signals given and try to interpret the meaning of the low, occasional whistles the thieves share, trying to follow their plan. When one of the suitcases they've brought is open, we greedily zero in on what's inside. Slippers. So they will make even less noise. From there, Rafifi settles into quiet contemplation of the process of the heist. The careful laying out of the tools needed. The chiseling through the floor, muted by cloths. One of the thieves has devised a genius idea. Once a hole in the floor has been made, an umbrella is slipped into the store below and open from the apartment above. Why? To softly catch the falling debris so it doesn't crash to the store's floor, giving them away. Time continues to pass, both too slowly and too quickly, as the thieves are under a strict deadline and every second is a risk. When one of them accidentally hits a key on the piano in the apartment, the others pause and dramatically frown. The sound disrupts what has become a holy place. Hmm. It's a wonder. It's staggering. Hmm. It was a sequence I discovered during a film spotting marathon back... I don't know, somewhere around 2007 or 2009, we did great heist movies. Mm. And this one was a must watch, and it certainly paid off. I saw an interview with Dassin on YouTube where the director said, these are professional guys who work in silence. Noise is an enemy. Mm. And it's as simple as that. They don't need to communicate. They can do it through their actions. They're so comfortable working together. They have such a good plan that they don't need to make any sound. And of course, in this case, they really can't afford to make any sounds. We heard Jeff Milo at the beginning of this top five talking about Mission Impossible. Yeah, completely, yeah absolutely. Completely uh, ripping off Yeah, yeah but in a, in a great way, though. Yeah. In a really great way, because I also really like that scene. And I think whether or not we would consider it an homage, it makes me think of what Michael Mann does in a robbery scene, a key robbery scene in Heat mm. from 1995, I believe. Another great candidate for this list, because... They know when the heist is going to happen. It's De Niro and his crew and Pacino and his crew of cops are staked out across the street in the back of a semi truck. And they're being as quiet as they can be to not let on that the police are watching them and they're waiting for them to come out with the loot. Until they come out, they can't really bust them for anything. They can't bust them for just attempting the robbery. And a cop who's just a cop, he's not a professional, not on the level of the other professionals that man introduces us to. He accidentally goes to kind of sit down or he moves and he makes a sound. His his belt, his gun belt or something hits the back of the semi and it makes a noise. Right. And De Niro hears it and he's on to them. That's right. all he needed was to hear that one little sound. It's just like a quiet yeah. place. Yeah, it but, really you know, is. De, Niro, De Niro's the, the extraterrestrial. <laughs> he <you know>? is, <laughs> he is. And they managed to get out of there. So Heat, I think man probably paying a little bit of homage there, alluding to Rafifi. And part of that interview, Michael, we've talked about composers a little bit here and that instinct, whether to use music or not. But in that interview, the director mentions that his composer said, I'm going to score this. I'm going to give you a score. And he says, I, I don't want any sound. I, I don't need any music for it. And he goes, no, I'm going to do it to save you, just just to give you a backup, because I don't think it's mm. probably going to work. And then they screened it, 
with the music and without. And the composer <laughs> said, no music, bad music. <laughs> Even the composer <laughs> said, don't use the music, go with the version without. Yeah, and the opposite thing happened when Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock were working on Psycho because Hitchcock said, "This is I need this to be dead quiet. Hmm. And it was a different kind of uh, of stark and effective. But then they played that music and yeah. Hitchcock was like, uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. Hmm. So you never Those know. Those are our top five quiet scenes. We'd love to hear your picks. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Michael, any honorable mentions, any others that haven't come up? Well, the first one that comes to mind, because I adore the film and I love, I love this is just a, a scene I've always cherished, is in The Black Stallion, Carol Ballard's 1979 film, when Kelly Reno is the young uh, stranded boy who's on this deserted island with the, with the uh, Arabian horse um, from Walter Farley's book. And it's, it's a long sequence where they just simply have to kind of get to know each other in this difficult circumstance. And the boy's trying to figure out a way to communicate and befriend the horse. And it eventually comes down to him trying to feed him and then successfully feeding him and then riding him. And that film is just two or three minutes like I've never seen. And it, it was the work of a truly free filmmaker who was came out of documentaries and they were shooting on the island of Malta a long way from the studio. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was there to interfere. They shot for days and days, got all the footage they needed and then some. And uh, I don't know, you see that film now, I wish I, wish I could see it again for the first time because I saw that film when I was well into my jaded early 20s mm-hmm. and I just came out a little... You know, this sort of a gog eight-year-old, you know, and I don't like you. I don't even care about horses, you know. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I never, you know, it's, yeah. it's not, I don't, horse lore and horse movies didn't speak to me particularly, but I, I just, that scene in that film, I just, that's the one that comes to mind. For so what you're saying is before next week's top five here on the show, Animal Companions in movies, I'm going to have to watch the Black Stallion. Oh, I've be never real, seen it. Uh, I know Josh is a big fan. It would be oh, it'll be a real hardship sure. to have to watch a great film. Adam, <laughs> you know, I mean, be, I'm, I'm already dreading it, Michael. Check it out. Check it out, baby. <laughs> well, a couple others that I'll mention. Few have already been said. There will be blood. The opening scene that you had, Michael. No country for old men waiting in the dark in the hotel room. The Orphanage. This is a scene I've talked about a lot on this show. Oh, the seance? It terrifies me, but the seance is a great pick, too. Really creepy, but actually I'm thinking of the one, two, three, knock at the door sequence oh, at yeah, the end good. of the film. Very effective. I, I've talked about it before, and I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out, but really just terrifies me, and I'm glad I rewatched it today in broad daylight. <laughs> it isn't all classics, though, that have some of these great uses of silence in movies, Michael. So I'll mention three from last year. They've all been touched on on the show. The end, the end credits of Call Me By Your Name, watching oh, Timothy Chalamet. Lovely. No dialogue there, the crackle of the fire, and a well, great, great, song, a great yeah. bit of music as well. Sufjan Stevens, I think right. we're getting at the right. end of that. Dunkirk, the plane in the air, the plane finally out of gas, just coasting there at the end, and... The moment in The Last Jedi that so effectively uses the absence of sound that some movie theaters had to put up a sign yeah, that's right. warning people yep. that, yes, we know the sound goes out for 10 seconds. Well, no, it's longer it's, than that. It's, it's not it's, a problem. It's, it's quite long. I think it's, it's many seconds. But well, yeah, you... it is. And yet the second time I saw it, I'm like, this must feel like forever. It went by really quickly. I can't believe people actually complained about it. But it's so stark. It is so striking that yeah. it cuts out completely in this big action moment. It's a really wonderful choice by yeah, Ryan Johnson. Well, people are dumb. 
Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, think we should end on that note. Yeah, yeah, we're there. <laughs> Again, those are our top five quiet scenes. We'd love to hear your picks. Our email, feedback at filmspotting.net. I'd say to leave us a voicemail, but it'd have to just be silence. Heavy breathing <laughs> on the end. And really, I don't and, think we want maybe those. Maybe a meaningful nod, which we won't hear. <laughs> no, we won't. Yeah. That is our show. If you have any thoughts, that email again, feedback at filmspotting.net. At our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 13. 15 plus years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. If you haven't done so already, please check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, a rogue genetic experiment transforms a gentle ape into a raging monster with Dwayne Johnson. Rampage, Michael, you've seen it. Mm-hmm. That's all you have to say about it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Truth or Dare, a harmless game of Truth or Dare among friends turns deadly. That's also out. Have you seen that film? No, that was screening tonight. Mm, and so you had to what come do you want me to, to me. do? You, what, yeah. what do you want me to do? <laughs> want me to go to that? I'd rather have you here. Oh, here we go. In limited release, Borg v. McEnroe, Shia LaBeouf as McEnroe in that. Sergeant Stubby, an American hero about a stray dog. Maybe this will be on next week's top five. A stray dog gets adopted by a soldier while training for World War One. Zama, the latest from Argentina's Lucretia Martel. We included her in our Argentine cinema marathon recently, The Headless Woman and La Cienega. And then one I'm really excited to see. You were never really here. Not, in fact, a sequel to Joaquin Phoenix's I'm Still Here, thankfully. thankfully. But his collaboration with Scottish filmmaker Lynn Ramsey, who gave us Ratcatcher and We Need to Talk About Kevin. Lean on Pete is also out. The new one from Andrew Haig, great director behind 45 Years and Weekend. And Michael, I know you've already said it. You've seen this film and highly recommend it. Big fan. Uh, it was A.A. Dowd, Chicago's own, who mm-hmm. writes for the AV Club, uh, really put it best in three words. Sad as F dash dash dash. Oh, no. Yeah. it's all, <laughs> Now I don't want to see it. Oh, I'm changing the topic. It's sad. I don't need sad. I don't need sad You may AF. not need it. But you're going to get it, and okay. I think you're going to take it, and I think you're going to like it because he is, you know, seriously, it's it, it's a kind of it's a kind of crushing sadness mm. that somehow doesn't leave you feeling <laughs> resentful because it's okay. so good. He's just he's a good filmmaker. He's a really good filmmaker. Yep. Joshua will return. We'll review. Lean on Pete. I'll see if I can get over the crushing sadness, and we will share our top five animal companions. So movies that feature bonding between mm-hmm. animals and humans, a.k.a. a very special crying edition of Film Spotting, <laughs> it sounds like. Our thanks to Michael Phillips for your contributions this week. Always a pleasure. I hope you had fun. It was fun. I, I, I wanted to do it more quietly. I, I felt like I got a little got noisy. Got on that? Yeah, I got a little noisy here and there, but no, it was fun, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, where can people find more of your stuff? If they must. Mm. They'd have to go to Chicago com slash movies. And at Twitter... Twitter, good follow. Phillips Tribune. I Why got not? a few, you know, I got a few <laughs> reluctant fans. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. Music this week comes from Y Oak. From the album The Louder I Call, The Faster It Runs. More information at yoakmusic.com. The Louder I Call. I see where Sam's going with that music choice. Like For it. Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.